Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, the impression that I get, was the single biggest ska punk hit of the 90s. The song was everywhere, and for a while, the band were legit rock stars. But before any of that, they toiled in clubs in Boston in the 80s. The band eventually fizzled out, then reformed in the late 80s and signed to Tang Records, now a buzzing cult band. By 1993, they were on Mercury Records, but it took a few albums before they cracked the mainstream. That happened with their 1997 record, Let's Face It, a huge hit. Today we speak to one of the founders and primary songwriters for the Boston's, Joe Gittleman, aka The Bass Fiddleman. We talk Boston's and their breakup last year, his time at Side One Dummy, the bands he's produced, and we discuss his new solo material on the Bad Time Records Wavebreaker split with Bad Operation. The Joe Gittleman Bad Operation Wavebreaker releases on June 16th. Check it out. So we had the Mighty Mighty Boston's break up last year. That was kind of the biggest ska news happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the first time anyone besides Dickie has, has talked about it. Yeah. Right here on your official ska news network. Were you nervous to talk to Joe? No, no. I We had spoken before the interview. Oh, okay. I was nervous to talk to Joe. <laughs> I, think, I think it went really, really well, though. I'm really excited for uh, what he has in store musically in the future. Yeah, yeah. So by the time this episode releases, the Wave Breaker with Bad Operation will have been announced already. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's his his new tunes are great. We've heard all of them. We heard them in the past, and now you'll hear them in the future. <laughs> Were we both at Lollapalooza 95, Aaron? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that was when I saw you guys. Oh, my God. That was the very last summer of my drinking was Lollapalooza. Oh, oh drinking really? at the Whatever the holiday is, at Labor Day at the end of the summer. Is that right? I can't remember. Memorial Day. Uh, that was my very last drop of alcohol was after that Lollapalooza. Wow. Well, congratulations on 
uh-huh. stop it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it had it had to be done. <laughs> it had to be done. I remember seeing you guys before that, like a few years before that, and I remember thinking, like, um, I think someone had told me, like, they're very professional. Like, I don't know why that stuck in my head. Like, very professional, uh-huh. and that like stuck in my head. And I watched you guys, and I was like, wow, they are just tight. Yeah, they are like a machine. They know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, just like it really just like struck me. And this was before you guys were, you know, had like a hit single. So you were, uh, you know, I mean, you were on the bit, you were on Mercury or whatever, but you were DIY working machine. (laughs) You know, we toured a lot back then. There were, there were 300 days, uh, 300 shows one year, I remember (laughs) was was probably the height of it. So I, I'd hoped that we'd be tight. You know, yeah. If you're not, if you're not after that, well, what I heard, and I think, uh, I think I asked at Nate about this, and I think he confirmed it, is that didn't you guys like practice? Like when you weren't touring, didn't you practice like a lot? <laughs> uh, I mean, there were times when we when we may have, you know, but uh, practice was funny. I, someone just talked to me the other day about, you know, when when we started, Nate Nate and I were in high school. Uh, he was a year younger than me and, you know, Dick was a little older and he'd been in some bands and had some experience and stuff. And, um, one of the funny things about starting the Boston's, one of the, one of the like first like rules that instituted in the Boston's and it's, it was a really good one. I think Dickie seeing that we were these green kids who had never been on stage before. He wouldn't let us sit down and practice. He's just like, no guys, it's a bad idea. You gotta, you know? And, um, you know, I, I carried that with me the whole way. I didn't, I never sat down and practice. I never sat down in the studio when we made records either. Mm. Yeah. I think that's important. I, I feel like it changes the vibe if you're sitting down and you got to be able to play that stuff standing up. Yeah, <laughs> totally. You got to be able to play that stuff standing up drunk too. Which is, you know, <laughs> did did y'all practice drinking at practice too? Oh Yeah. Well, what we would do was, so there was this garage next to my mom's house in Central Square, Cambridge. It was, there was a row of 20 rental garages where people kept some, some nice cars, some storage units and this, this and that. And she struck up a friendship with the guy who owned those garages and got him to like, let us rent this one little room that didn't have a garage door on it, but it had just had a regular door. And there was a bathroom in there that didn't work. There was no heat and there was no electricity. The electricity, my mom had to run a, like a 250-foot extension cord over the roof of the garage from our house down into the whatever vent at the at the top of that little space. And um, we would drink in there, and we usually it would start with uh, collecting the empties from the practice before and returning those. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes those empties from the practice before would turn into two 40-ounce um, you know, or something like that, like just what could you get with it kind of a thing. But yeah, you know, that was at that point in our, in our, uh, in our lives, that was a, that was certainly part of it. (laughs) Did you have a moment where you're like, okay, this is it with drinking. This is not working for me anymore. Uh, well, you know, there were, there were a series of things I'd say that, you know, maybe like kind of, um, stuck with me that I, I remembered and considered and some difficult and uncomfortable situations. And, and the Boston's, I mean, we were kind of, we were kind of drinking ourselves out of a record contract on, mm. on that, on that, uh, when we're on Lollapalooza. So that would have been, um, what's that called? Uh, question the answers. Yeah. Yeah. Y- you know, like, you know, we were, we were, uh, we weren't the, uh, we were, we could be a tough bunch to be around. And I, I think for the label too, 
especially, you know, it could, it could get tough. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was it for me, that Lollapalooza. Uh, part of the reason I'd say that I quit drinking is because we were on at like 1230 every day, you know, or yeah. one o'clock Jesus lizard was on before us on the main stage. And, you know, um, to get yourself in, in the sort of state of mind, if you will, that you're used to being, it's like, you know, you gotta, you gotta get your, your, uh, your, um, pads on early you yeah know? you're you're drinking at breakfast basically yeah uh-huh yeah absolutely well adam here has never had a had a drink of alcohol <laughs> like, I like to i've put... been around a lot of people who drank uh-huh. yeah sorry 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 about that okay. yeah so i remember at, at Lollapalooza, i remember coming in during jesus lizard's set and couldn't find the singer and then all of a sudden he came barreling out of the audience <laughs> yeah David, David Yao. We're, we're, we're buddies with those guys. Yeah. And, um, um, pavement was on that show. We played ping pong with those, those, that band a lot. Nice. Uh, it was, it was a, it was a, it was a fun, fun time. Cypress Hill was on that tour back. It was wild. I mean, talk about diverse, man. That yeah. was such a diverse thing. I feel like that was the last year that, that, uh, Lollapalooza was really diverse and really interesting. Unfortunately, it was the first year where it was playing a lot of those um, sheds, you know, the blue seat the kind of venues, you know. With oh, the, yeah. The, lawn, the the circle pit up on the lawn and then the empty Courtney Love seats up to the stage. You know? <laughs> yeah, that was that was us, Shoreline Amphitheater. Uh, and I yeah. remember we're, you know, pitting to the Boston yeah. on this on this hill that's at like a 45 degree angle. Yeah. So you'd like you'd charge up one side of the pit like almost on your hands and, and feet, like crawling. And then you would basically dive down the other side and everybody would end up in a weird dog pile at the bottom. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and sometimes, sometimes, uh, you know, Dick would encourage you to come down mm-hmm. regardless of the security that's stopping you. Um, and we, so we did that sometimes, but we did that <laughs> enough that they, they began to let us play extra sets on the second stage. Because the second stage would oh, yeah. always be kind of like open field, you know, parking lot adjacent kind of a thing, and we made we made that request every single day. We wanted nice. to play an ex- extra set on the second stage. I don't know if we maybe did that four or five or six times during that summer, um, but yeah, that was that was always good. I don't know. I don't know what year it was, but Ministry played Lollapalooza one year, and yeah, that mm. that uphill slant pit in the shoreline was the most terrifying I'm sure uh mosh moment I had. I tried one I did like one circle and I was out. I was just <laughs> people were in it like they were in it to be serious. Yeah. Oh yeah. I bet. <laughs> I'm going to that same venue on Saturday to see the cure. Oh nice. I don't think there'll be a pit. <laughs> so a lot more fun stuff to talk about, but I think probably just get Get this part out of the way. Um, okay. Talk about the uh, the mighty mighty Boston's breaking up. I want to talk about um, just because Dick, Dicky has has kind of been public about his perception of the event. So I just wanted to mm-hmm. talk about what he said on. Um, is it called the High Wire? It's like a it's a show. I think it's kind of an anti-vax mostly kind of show. I'll have to check my TiVo. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I mean, he said some stuff like about how his beliefs and his activism made you guys uncomfortable. And then the host said, um, after 30 years of your band being together, investing your time and your energy to just have this issue, to have this vaccine be what tears it apart. 
And then D- Dickie basically agreed with it. Well, I'll, I'll just take the opportunity to say clearly the Mighty Mighty Boston's accepted medical choices of not only Dickie, but the unvaccinated crew friends out with us on tour. And I'll just, I'll just, I'll just, you know, point out on tour. We, we were on tour. So I, I just don't know the mechanics of the disagreement he's referring to. I guess I, I should really say I'm sorry he felt that way, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you guys were on tour when the breakup happened? No. No. No, but issues around vaccination and bands happen leading up to tour because of, you know, the protocols and the, you know, the, the restrictions and the venues need this and that and all those kinds of things, you know? Mm-hmm. We were on tour. We we did a really fun tour that summer of 2021. Our um, our last show ended up actually being uh, Worcester, though behind the Palladium with no effects. And and I, I I can't say I would have chosen that for our last show, but Worcester was always really a special spot for us. You know, mm-hmm. in the early days, we it was probably the first place we could. Re- reliably make a thousand dollars you know going to like these there was this worcester artist group place and they used to pack kids into these little um sort of gallery loft spaces and stuff you know so uh we were out there yeah i'm glad we were too you know that that the boston's emerged from that time uh not playing and with that new record and you know the conditions were it was not easy to make that record mm-hmm. it was not easy to get on tour it was not easy with the you know everything that was swirling around at that time was uh was what made it difficult for sure um but you need to understand like me and dickie made that record over the course of six months we wrote that record largely me and him probably wrote i don't know 10 of the 13 14 songs on it you know mm-hmm. we're in touch throughout the day every day 10 texts, phone calls, working on music together. It's like, I knew how he felt. This is this no surprise to me that when it came time that that's how he felt. That was fine with me. It didn't bother me in the least that we were sort of, I guess, seeing things a little bit differently. And maybe it didn't bother me in part because I just didn't really care that much. You know, I, I, was, I was working. You know, I was trying to teach online, trying to get back in school and dealing with all that shit, like most people trying to navigate it. It was difficult, but me and Dickie were so dug in on the music and he was inspired. And uh, it it doesn't bother me that he, um, you know, sort of expressed some of that stuff or that that was fueling him. There was there was no part during that whole creative process in the studio before the studio or otherwise where I really, you know, there was any tension between us around any of these issues. I'll just say that. Oh, interesting. So I guess, did it surprise you that he was kind of going out and saying this stuff then? Um, no, it surprised me when he, when he got involved sort of in, the, in an organized way. Yeah. With that, those rallies and things like that. I, you know, first of all, that feels good to him and and he's very you know he made it very clear that this is something that's important to him and you know i think it was our you know dawning awareness around the importance of the movement piece you know to be involved in that movement piece that kind of uh you know led to us having a conversation and band we'd expressed some concerns and 
he made it clear that that was kind of his thing. And uh, I don't know what to say, except there was no support voiced among the Mighty Mighty Boston's for continuing on under the new conditions we've been handed. And uh, we'd have had such an awesome and overwhelmingly positive time playing music together, you know, feeling like we were pulling together in the same direction. We'd also been a band for 35 years. And when I tell you that there were always opportunities and times when I'd think, okay, is this still feeling right? Am I still excited about doing this? Is this is this still uh, the mission that I signed up for? Are we still friends? Are we still having fun? You know what I mean? Like that's how I that was I was there for the music, and that, that's how I sort of measured the future of the the band against sort of just how we were doing together as a group. You know? Yeah. And um, we reached a point where it seemed like you know an individual wanted to pull the band into something that the band didn't want to be a part of, to be quite frank. But again, I'm not speaking for anybody else. Sure. You would have to ask the other members of the band what, what their, what their reasons were or, or what the issue was at stake. The, the, the issue at stake for me is between me and Dickie. Um, but, but certainly the surprise of it, I think is the thing that is, had has, has stayed with me the longest, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Bands like families are very complicated entities yeah. and, operate on multiple levels, especially bands that have been together for three plus decades. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and every decision you make is built upon other decisions you've made and how you feel about each other and the health of that relationship and everything else. You know, it's like the end of the Boston's isn't merely about that. I think it's also, you know, that we had become a a sort of a part-time do it for the love of it fun thing. No one had been making a living off the Mighty Mighty Boston's since probably 2000. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That we were, we, we played 10 shows some year, 20. It was very much for me sort of a, a, a social fun thing, you know, is what it had become. And, and by the way, that, that relaxed touring schedule really allowed, I think, me and Dickie to work more closely on the writing and, and we really dug in there and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I again, I, I'm sorry to hear that he that he's felt that was an issue. I, I will I will also say, you know, uh, among my other unvaccinated friends, I think a lot of people were feeling the squeeze in that summer of 2021. Um, but I hate to think that he was feeling it from our organization. We were ad hoc as fuck. There wasn't even really structure to to you know to enforce anything on anybody in that band, you know. But anyway, I, again, though. I'm sorry that to, that he, he felt that was an issue. Thank you for sharing all that. I appreciate it. Sure. Let's talk about, you're, you have a new Wavebreaker um, record with Bad Operation on, on Bad Time Records. Yes. Super excited about that. Yeah. I, uh, I, I heard the Bad Operation songs and I heard your songs. They're all amazing. Right on. I love the Bad Op tunes myself. Yeah. Really, really great. Do you remember the first time you heard Bad Operation? Um, I remember seeing those, well, I remember the first time I heard of them, I think it was in Spanner, maybe it was Alternative Press, but it was just that like, whoa, these people did not look anything like a ska band and they're in New Orleans and like, what the fuck is that? (laughs) And I loved that. It was cool. And, and I, you know, the videos I've seen all the, the videos and, uh, I've been listening to Bad Operation for a while, you know, certainly. Um, but I've been a big fan since working with them on this project. I, I'm actually working on some more music right now with 
with D-Ray is working on something for an, another thing I'm, I'm working on. So oh, awesome. um, it's connecting with them has been really cool. And, um, you know, for Mike to reach out, not only to reach out, but, but to stay on it and, and push through and, you know, get, get this all together. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I was really happy to be asked, you know, and, and I, and it, it felt good to turn my attention towards something sort of more future facing, I guess. How is it to release music as Joe Gittleman? <laughs> <laughs> R- rather unspectacular. <laughs> I feel like it probably feels a little naked. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is why I'm just kind of, I don't know, I'm just really working on them, focusing on the music part of it. But uh, um, how does it feel? I mean, that's part of the thing about being in a band like the Boston's, you know, is like, you know, that experience is such a thing, you know, and there's so mm-hmm. much energy and weight and, you know, um, power there, eight other people and, and all that, you know, it's like, um, it's doing it yourself. It is very, is very sort of naked, I suppose, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I can't stop is my problem. And so <laughs> I'm just going to keep uh, making music. Yeah. I mean, Boston fans probably know this, but maybe uh, casual fans don't know this is that you are one of the primary songwriters for the Mighty Mighty Boston. So it's not mm-hmm. a big stretch that you would continue to write songs. That sound like the Boston's? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say what it is. Right? <laughs> I Well, I have a, a huge amount of music ma- massed. You know what I mean? Like when we wrote uh, When God Was Great, I never stopped after that. Mm. Like I kept go- I kept going and trying to like – I tried to roll that into the next project and I was sending, you know, tunes to Dick and stuff and, you know, just trying to like still be really busy doing that. And, you know, through that process and, and, and ever since, you know, all I've really spent my time on is, is working on music and whether that's in the studio or just at home and stuff. So um, I just have a lot of, of that music that kind of probably sounds a little like that. So these songs that are on the Wavebreaker, were they, only written for the Wavebreaker, or had they originally been Boston's demos? Um, well, you know, two of those songs I actually shared with friends on socials, like maybe a few months after the Boston's broke up. Um, you know, these songs probably, some of those songs probably were on things that I sent to Dick, maybe, maybe without lyrics, but, you know, musical ideas and early sketches of, of ideas and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's between avoid one thing, my other side thing and the Boston's, I mean, those songs could end up in either place kind of, you know, depending on how you, you put them together. How many demos do you, do you think you have in the chamber right now? How many are like sitting on a hard drive somewhere? The best of them are are now being mixed. Is gonna I'm I'm gonna I'm we're finishing up a full length. Uh, oh great! Record right now, so um, I don't know when that'll come out, but I'm working on that. So I'd say that the my favorites of of that pile went there, and, and I've sent some things to other some other bands. I'm trying to do yeah. some collaborations and um, got some cool things maybe going with some some different groups of friends, and and so that's been been rewarding to not feel like I'm alone only in the music. And, and with my new, my new record, I, I collaborated with some awesome musicians up here in, in Northern New Hampshire. You want to shout any of them out? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there, I found this incredible studio over the hill from my house. I live in the white mountains. So like 
basically like you, you see Mount Washington from my house. Um, but on the other side, um, over the hill in, in Easton, New Hampshire, there's this really cool old studio called Mojo, um, oldest operating operational studio in New Hampshire, which I believe dates it all the way back to 1997. <laughs> <laughs> way back then. Yeah, way back then. Uh, and just some really great musicians hang out there. The guy, Anthony's a killer engineer and, and a slamming session drummer. And, um, one of my former students, this, this guy, Ryan McDonald, I, I teach in a music business program at, um, Vermont state university. And, and one of my students who graduated probably, I don't know, 10 years ago or something like that. Ryan McDonald, mm-hmm. um, he's been working on it with me too. We co-wrote a few songs and he's been playing some guitar and, um, big D horns in the studio. I got um, pie tasters horns involved. Uh, you know, just a, a lot of different friends. D Ray from from Bad Operation oh, yeah. on a track too for that new record. He actually just sent that to me today. His tracks. So it's all coming together. I don't know. I don't know when that'll be. I, I sort of get done. I, I sort of feel like, oh yeah, this is done. And then I write another song and go, oh, but maybe this one's better than that one. Kind of. <laughs> There's the, the the other beauty of of releasing music is on, as Joe Gittleman is, you know, really there's no um, there's no pressure to to get it out anytime soon, really. But I hope so. I hope this summer, maybe sometime. Before um, when God was great, the previous Boston Records was a few years before that. You you said that the, you've been just can't stop writing songs since then. Were you not writing songs so much before then? No, I was. You know, there was an there was another Avoid One Thing record in between those two Boston's records too. Oh, okay. It was actually that was pretty much written before. While we're at it, and there was a request for me to hold that, which I did. I held it back a couple of years. Um, but uh, I always, I'm always writing. You know, I'm always kind of that's 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 how I spend most of my time. What's your writing process like? Uh, I have an acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. And um, I try and capture as many sort of off the cuff ideas just on voice memo as possible, and you store those things and kind of let them incubate, so you maybe can have a chance to hear them like a normal person would. You know, like let a month go by and listen to them again, and then depending on what the project's for, do I need to work up a demo? Is it something that I need to demonstrate to somebody? Or is it one of my friends in bands I'm working with now where I just have the luxury of sending a voice memo of a song with a guitar and a vocal and, and those bands sometimes can do m- amazing things with that, you know? Can you clue us into any, who any of those bands are? <laughs> uh, it, it might be early. I, I don't know. I, I, it's, I hate for that to say and then not, and then for some reason it doesn't come together. Yeah. I just wasn't sure if anything had, had been recorded and was already out. Yes. Something amazing has been recorded, but it's not out. But it's not out. Okay. Amazing with a with the f- all capital letters underlined. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one of my songs by another band. Yeah. Yeah, I just think that's that's such a great move. Like, I mean, if you're a prolific songwriter, some some bands, you know, maybe you're stumped for a song or are just happy to have an, an you know an outside perspective. Sure. If if you're if you're if you're a pro- prolific songwriter or a non-prolific frontman writing song writing songs for other bands is a, is always a good thing absolutely Mike Szynski did he just reach out to you one day or how, just like out of the blue like we would love to do a w- wave breaker with you Yeah I don't know I mean you know, maybe it was when I when I when I put out a couple things you know mm. um 
rather unceremoniously, he reached out to me and, um, you know, expressed some interest. And, uh, you know, that was, that was really great. I've, I've, uh, I've had such a, such a, a great time working with him and, um, the bad op team. So it's just been a really positive experience and, and I'm stoked on it. I mean, not to put Mike on blast, but he's, he's a huge Mighty Mighty Boston's fan. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. He's got to be over the moon, man. Yeah. You know, um, I, I know that he is. Yeah. And um, that's great. You know, that the Boston's, you know, perhaps had some influence in, in uh, inspiring some of the bands in that scene to me is, is a very um, uh, proud thing for me. Have you had a chance, uh, aside from Bad Operation, to kind of check out some of the bands on this scene? Oh yeah, I love Catbite. Oh my Cat god, bite, yeah, yeah, I love Catbite absolutely. And I, I think I'm going to go to. Um, I'm hoping to go to the uh, to the Bad Time tour in in a few weeks here, Summer oh, Mass. I think in June, sometime in June, end of June. Very nice. So yeah, I'm I'm stoked on it. I've, I think I've listened to pretty much everything on that. You know what I haven't heard that I really want to listen to, which I have a feeling I would really love, is the Palms. Oh yeah, I think that'd be right up your alley. It's real good stuff. Right. I want to. I want to check that out. So there's a song on the uh, Waybreaker. Pete lost the beat. Uh huh. Is there? I'm just really curious if there's a story behind. <laughs> it sounds like there's a story behind this song. Well, not really. To be honest, I mean, it's a, it's a made up story. I can tell you, you know, Eve wrote, Eve, what is this? Uh, Eve wrote her song under the stairwell. Up behind my house, there's a, way up on the hill, there's a, another house and, and there's a dog named Eve that lives there. And Eve, I, I play guitar out on the back porch sometimes and write songs. And sometimes Eve, you'll hear, she's pretty quiet, but sometimes when she speaks, you hear her and you always notice. And so that line, Eve wrote her song under the stairwell was just kind of, in response to the dog up on the hill while I was writing the song. But then you, you create a story around it. You know, it's, uh, I, I have songs that are personal to me, you know, um, that's not, that's not, you know, necessarily one of them. Um, but yeah, it's, for me, it, it's can be a lot more about imagination. And I, when I'm writing songs, especially probably because I've spent so much time writing songs for the Boston's, I don't picture myself singing them. And and maybe and when you're when you're not picturing yourself singing them, I guess it doesn't have to be personal. Well, it yeah. doesn't have to be personal even if you are singing them. Yeah. Um, but I guess I feel some freedom from that, you know, where you can just be creative and and imagine. A lot of a lot of it is connected to feelings that I have from the past or something. That song "Lean on Sheena" um, that I wrote that the Bouncing Souls popularized, of course. I don't know someone named Sheena, <laughs> but you know, that, uh, that story of hearing someone like a disagreement upstairs in the apartment and stuff was something that I experienced a lot of, you know, that's kind of what inspired that song. Yeah. Kind of what inspired that song is like just sort of imagining all those disagreements and what's going on up there and trying to like build a story around it. Her, you know, your, uh, her mother wouldn't let, let her use the phone or whatever. Um, so just trying to fill, fill in the blanks, you know, like imagine a scenario and then try and paint a picture that sort of is illustrative, I guess, you know, I figured it could be Sheena from Sheena is a punk rocker or Sheena from uh, the cramp song. Sheena's in a golf gang. No, if any, if anything, <laughs> it's a different Sheena. 
No, if anything, it's probably from the outlet song that has Sheila. Best Friends, it's called Sheila. Mm. For when I when I when I was a kid, I wrote it for this band called the Outlets. It was uh, I was in high school, and um, Rick Barton from Dropkick Murphys was in that band, and Dave Barton, Rick's brother, is is to me one of the absolute best Boston songwriters ever. Just in terms of like pop, be punk. Just really great music, and um, they had a song called "Best Friends," and I think it was. Sh- or no, maybe that's maybe the song was called Sheila. I can't remember, but that was "Best Friends" with Sheila. Um, but anyway, it's the sound of that word, mm-hmm. Sheena, Sheila. It just sings good, you know. I don't think it gets talked about quite enough, but songwriters who approach songs like short story writers mm. is a, is a really cool art, and it. It's a, it's a great way to express an emotion rather than saying like, this is what I felt, but so you're crafting a story and uh, whether you're singing it from the I perspective or the third person perspective, mm. it's, you know, if you're writing fiction, you can yeah. do it in either and it, people ex- accept that, but in, in song, songwriting can be exactly the same thing and it's really cool. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, I mean, my, my, um, my lyric writing through a lot of these 40 years in the Boston was really non-existent, you know, Dick, you, the way in which we work together was always, for the most part, he wrote the lyrics and I wrote the music. So I, I still feel like I'm new at it, to be honest with you. Like, I'm still like, you know, trying to read things about writing lyrics and stuff, you know. I remember I asked Dave uh, Hawes one time, Dave, do you, have you ever written, read, written any good books about lyric writing? His response like, why the fuck would you read a book about lyric writing? <laughs> 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 or something to that extent, you know. So you mentioned Lean on Sheena. Um, this is a song uh, from Avoid One Thing's first record uh, in 2002. Bouncing Souls covered it like, four, I think, four years later. Uh-huh. And um, their version is, like, pretty big. Yeah. Huge. <laughs> it's like, I was looking at Spotify. It's like their second most played song on Spotify. It's awesome. I assume that just one day they were like, yeah, we want to cover the song. And you were like, cool. Here's where that, that worked was um, I was uh, working at Side One Dummy mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, Side One Dummy had released that record, that Avoid One Thing record. But I, I started working at Side One doing like A&R stuff. You know, I was I, producing some records and trying to help scout some bands and whatever else. Small label, everyone kind of did a lot of everything, you know. Um, and Ted Hutt was always in there. Ted Hutt, the producer was always in there. And I, I think it was Joe Sib probably who gave Ted the idea. Um, but it had, it, it kind of came through Ted. He had the idea. And, um, luckily, um, McDermott, the drummer had, he had written some review. I don't even know what it was, a fanzine thing or something. Well, I remember he, he had, he had, he had, he had like recognized that song as something that he thought was cool. Um, I, some to the extent, if I recall, like would have been cool to hear Dickie sing that one or <laughs> something <laughs> along those lines. But so he, he knew of the song and, and, um, I don't know, I, I, they, they were game to give it a crack and I was in the studio a bit popping, popping in here and there. And it was sounding amazing at, at one point, uh, Greg called me and sort of floated the idea of more lyrics. And, and so we kind of brainstormed about more lyrics and, the one thing to me that Lean on Sheena didn't have that the souls wanted was that the sort of like positive ending kind of a thing, you know, 
And so the, the, those lyrics at the end there feel a little more bouncing. Soul's got a friend till the end, never coming back again, always on my mind and my heart. Um, feels very bouncing souls to me, you know. I see, yeah. And so, but unfortunately, if Avoid One Thing plays, um, either we do that version or people sing the wrong lyrics on top of us. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that happens too, you know. Did it surprise you how big their version of your song got? Well, uh, I'll say that people always send me, people would always send me. So if the Bouncing Souls maybe were out on tour then after that or, you know, in Europe or something, people who were friends of mine who knew that I wrote the song always send me um, side stage tech, uh, uh, videos of the Bouncing Souls playing Lean on Sheena. And so... I guess probably within that first tour or two, I started to see more and more like the whole crowd singing along kind of a thing. You know, it went from just like, oh, look, they're playing your song to like that moment when everyone's singing it, you know? Um, yeah, but, you know, that's the Bouncing Souls machinery that made that song. And, um, you know, they did something with it that I couldn't have done. I didn't do. <laughs> so, something I didn't do with it. So yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's great. It's, it's, it's awesome. I'm, I'm so proud of that. So, so, so proud of that. That, that the bouncing souls did one of my songs is what I mean by that. Sure. Yeah. It sounds, it's, it's interesting how like you, you listen to your version and you can hear how you wrote it, but then you listen to their version and it sounds like a bouncing soul song, but it doesn't sound remarkably different either. No. It's 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 melodically and lyrically very much sort of the same. It's the guitar, you know. That was I had a I had a Roland VS eight eighty, which was like the first version of a home studio that I could access at, at that point in my life, you know. And um, it had built in little sounds and like guitar things, little filters, and it had this little wah thing. And you know, I was just building it on top of a um, a Lesis drum machine. Um, loop that somewhere in, in that Alesis drum machine, there's that, there's that loop that ended up in on my version. And this was kind of, kind of play a similar rhythm to that, but you know, I was just kind of using the, the bits and pieces I had to, to try and put something together. And it seemed cool. You know what I mean? It seemed mm -hmm. cool. And when I played it, uh, my wife heard it. Like she let me know that it was cool. She doesn't let me know much of my music is cool. <laughs> <laughs> what is your wife like to listen to? I met her at Tang Records. She she was working. She came. She moved to Boston because she loved the Lemonheads and she loved Buffalo Tom and you know those sort of bands of this. She loved Nirvana. You know, she came with Nirvana's first record in tow and and all that kind of stuff. She was a um, BU student at the time, but also. Um, was working at Tang Records, and that's that's where I met my wife. And I was in a ska band, and, and it really wasn't her thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> like I, it, it was, it was definitely not her thing. But uh, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> How many years later? That was nineteen ninety. That was nineteen eighty nine, ninety ninety, probably ninety. You know, ninety ninety one. That's how you know it's true love. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When, when, when she'll listen to a whole one of my songs. <laughs> she's, she's great. So I'm curious about um, Side One Dummy. So you, you, you released this uh, side project first. And then how did you end up starting to work for them? 
Um, the Boston's were making uh, that record we made with actually John Seymour, the producer who produced uh, "How I Spent." What's that Bad Six Hole song? A uh, record. How I Spent My Summer Vacation. Or maybe it was Anchors Away. I don't know. He might have produced a couple records. But anyway, John Seymour. And, and actually, um, John Seymour, I, I, I wanted to work with him because of the Bouncing Souls. That song, Gone. That song, Gone, was just amazing to me. And I wanted to work with the guy who made that Bouncing Souls record. Or we did. And so we were making that record. It was called um, uh, Jackknife to a Swan. And I was finishing up the Avoid record at the same time. Like, I was literally mixing the Avoid record in Studio B while Boston's were finishing up tracking that record in Studio A. Like, there was a big overlap there. And um, what happened next? We went out on tour a little bit, Avoid. You know, we did uh, we did a couple weeks on the Warp Tour and, you know, some other things like that. Um, Boston's went and toured on that album, Jackknife to a Swan. I remember we were over in Europe with sort of our, our last tour leading into hiatus time. You know, we took a hiatus. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, somewhere in there, you know, um, avoid. Uh, I, oh, I, I remember what it was. I started tour managing. When, when the Boston's went on hi- hiatus, I started tour managing Flogging Molly. And I tour managed Flogging Molly for um, a year or so, which is which is like 15 years in, in uh, tour management years. <laughs> I was say. And I say that, I say that with maximum respect and love for all those people. For sure. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so Fog Molly was on side one. And I, I think that side one started to see me as available and, you know, doing a good job with Fog and Molly. And I was interacting with them more and more around shows and whatever else, you know, being on tour with their band, the band that was on their label. And so at some point uh, they asked me if I wanted to work there. And I, I did, I moved out to LA, I bought a house in Echo Park and um, it wasn't really clear what I was doing, to be honest with you. It was like um, A&R was part of it, you know, just trying to find some bands and chipping, but it was, everyone was doing that. I don't want to give you the impression I was the A&R department at all. Um, but I was doing some licensing stuff, trying to get some stuff placed in TV and film. And the best thing is when they'd asked me to make a record. I, you know, I produced Chuck Reagan's um, first record, that live one, live from it's from oh, Los yeah? Feliz. It's called, I think it's called, or maybe it's just called Los Feliz, Los Feliz. Uh, Big D and the Kid Table, Kids Table, Strictly Rude was another another record that I got asked to produce while I was working at the label. You know, so it was really cool that. It was sort of a combination of behind the desk things and and helping out where I could with this and that, and um, but then I'd get handed a project like that, and I lo- I, I really loved that. You know, I loved doing I loved doing those projects. Was there any bands that you uh, you specifically bought brought to the label? Um, no, I don't think I I brought anything specifically to the label. Um, I was, uh, you know, I was there when they when they decided to sign Gaslight. Like I, you know, I was at that show. Oh, you were actually. I this reminds me, you were you had Brian on your show. Yeah, yeah. I heard that. Yeah, you guys were all confused there. <laughs> okay, un unconfuse us, please. Let me just say, I try I tried calling the studio, but you guys had left <laughs> about three years earlier. So I was able to get through. Anyway, so. I was working at the label when when they played that first show and that little ragtag group of people went down there and, and saw Gaslight. They're awesome, you know. It's like 
didn't everyone knew that at the label everyone knew that they were just great you know but you were asking brian about something and he was confused about it oh it was when uh in the studio was 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 i involved in making the record i i I was gone from the label by that point okay and and then and then you were like well what was he doing (laughs) and that (laughs) you know brian what did how does brian answer that he and he was like i don't know he's hanging out writing songs i guess because what I had done is after I left the label, I, I started to try and turn my attention to the songwriting thing again. I'm like, well, now I'm in L.A. and maybe I should try and see about, I don't know what, a publishing deal or more collaborative stuff. And so that was the first time I ever sort of sent someone a song out of like nowhere was I sent this Brian Fallon a song. And uh, yeah, I, that's the, the first it was the first of many awkward, unsolicited collaborations I've tried to, <laughs> I've tried to <laughs> launch via email like that. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Did that one work? No, no, of course <laughs> not. Of course not. Brian, what does what does Brian need a song from me? He doesn't. Yeah, I you guess know not. I mean? Of course not. Of course not. Um, but anyway, I was just, you know, I don't know, I was just throwing it out there. Having sure. having having the, the 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 luck of the souls thing, I was, you know, I was feeling a little swagger, I guess, in yeah. my songwriting. So I figured it was time for my first awkward uh, unsolicited, uh, unsolicited collaboration. I, I, I was reading the Rolling Stone uh like oral history of 59 Sound, and uh you have a quote in there where you're talking about like sitting in the van with Brian and he's showing you demos of the record. He was, uh, I, I, I remember the back doors of the van were open and he was sitting in the back of the van and those doors were open. And I just remember he was sitting there writing songs while, while the band was loading in, you know, typical lead singer. Sure. I already loaded in my microphone. What do I need to do? <laughs> no, but he was, he was clearly, you know, on, he was plugged in on his thing, man, at that moment. And he was like taking every opportunity to write and, you know, look at that record. That, yeah, the record speaks for itself. The Fifty Nine Sound, you know that record. Um, aside from the fact that it's just really good record, whenever it would have been made, it strikes me as such an such an odd time for such this like anthemic punk rock rock and roll record to be released and to be received so well. Mm-hmm. Definitely refreshing that that record. I think I know, and it wasn't like it. It didn't hit immediately. It kind of was a people kind of came to it over time but it still was like it was awesome yeah but that was that was what was cool about that band i think you know it was really on just the strength of that record yeah you know what i mean like there wasn't it wasn't a big radio story or anything like that or Mm -hmm. yeah and i i don't i don't think like they got their pitchfork review until months after it was already out Mm -hmm. you know like stuff like that i think it was people warm people found it people Mm -hmm. warmed up to it and like and then it's you know it People still talk about it. People still praise the record. Still holds up. Yeah, of course, it's a great, great record. Really great. So, um, strictly rude. You you mentioned producing that record. Yeah, strictly rude is probably my favorite Big D record. Yeah. Um, I also think that if you look at the previous record and then you look at strictly rude, there's just um, the band has there's a big difference. Uh-huh. Like, like they've they've progressed a lot. The sound there's different things going on. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what your role in it was because like one of, I'd say like the biggest thing about that record is it actually leans a bit more into ska than punk, and I I think that the 
the way the horns and the vocals and the guitars are just all more clean sounding and yes. there's like a looserness, a looser groove to it. So yeah, please. First of all, I guess I'd say, you know, when you're working with Big Dean and the kids table, it's like they walk in the room with notebooks of things to lay out on the table <laughs> about <laughs> ideas that they have. And, you know, we, this would be cool if this, you know, just the way they talk about music together as a group and stuff. But that was a little different at that time. They were, they were planning on making two records. They wanted to make a dub record and they wanted to make a punk record. And I think they ultimately went on to do some version of that sort of themselves. But um, side one was interested. Um, and uh, I wanted to help them make a good record, certainly. Um, and they were doing a lot of work on the writing. I, I think we probably spent as, you know, I, I remember spending a lot of time on pre-production for that record in the practice space and working through ideas and sifting through demos and, um, and all that kind of stuff. The other, the other thing though, the other impactful thing too, is, you know, who else worked on that record is uh, Paul Coldery, who um, was the engineer and producer on almost all the Boston's records mm. from devil's night out. He's actually mixing my, my, my record right now. Um, but uh, working with him too, back to that same studio, Fort Apache. We're back into that sort of environment where the Boston's made, let's face it, and those uh, those other records and stuff. And but I was definitely trying to encourage sort of a, a leaning in that direction. You know, I like I like sort of poppy music. I guess I say the word pop like without any real disdain. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when done right, I guess it's that. That just to me is is good good song <laughs> uh so yeah i was I, I was encouraging them on the writing front but the band is great you know the the horn players work so hard at composing and and the steve the bass player was fantastic sean rogan just really top-notch musicians in that in that group you know yeah that's one of the things that really strikes me about the record is how well the horns are utilized which is a very mm. tricky thing in in writing ska punk records right hey so on that karyo song that i sent you yesterday that's uh that's big d those are the same same horn players from that oh, strictly nice. strictly root on, on that record there and sean rogan guitar player too um but yeah look i mean the energy and the ideas are all theirs you know it's like they come with so much you know it's they come with so much that i guess probably a big part of my role is like sifting and sorting you know right yeah it seems like a good producer isn't necessarily trying to be a, the creative engine, but to sort of be yeah, the editor. Sort yeah. of the, the Like, I'll let you know when you have good ideas and I'll let you know when you have ideas that maybe you could set aside. Yeah. Yeah. Helping people make the right decisions or make the right choices, I guess, you know? Yeah. There's mm -hmm. a quote from I don't, the guy who, um, I really should know his name. <laughs> uh, the guy who produced, uh, Highway 61 Revisited. Is that what it's called? The the um, mm -hmm. Bob Dylan song. I'm, I mean, album, I mean. Yeah, the album. And, uh, but so it was sort of talking about like, you know, a good producer needs to know when to sit in the back of the room and read a newspaper. You know what I mean? It's like, you can't be involved in everything. And like the, you know, you're working with a band that has this whole other dynamic and a whole other way of talking to each other and sorting through things and all that kind of stuff. And I think good producers have to understand like, th there are opportunities to make a million bad decisions every single day as a producer. Sure. Know? Yeah. And um, I think knowing when to not get involved is an important part of that, you know? 
um, and understanding what's needed to progress things and move things forward or to settle things and come to some kind of a decision or whatever it might be, you know? So, um, yeah, there were a lot of people there in that studio with a lot of good ideas. And so it was a really fun, it was a really fun session to be a part of. Now just a, just a little side, side note here, just to show that we're thorough. Yes. How I spent my summer vacation is the correct title of the record. Oh, good. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'd hate to get my, uh, my have those guys pull my card, you know, for sure saying something stupid. <laughs> who who else worked at um, Side One? Because I saw I saw that I think John Pebsworth from Bucko Nine worked there for a while. Yeah, John worked there for a long time. Oh. Yeah, John was John was my buddy there. We had we had a good crew of people. Thomas Drew, uh, you wouldn't know him. He's not a musician, and. Uh, I don't know. People, a lot of people came and went. I'll say that. Um, but uh, Joe and Bill, uh, and who else? Ashley Dechter was my friend there. She, to me, she was the one who discovered Gaslight Anthem. It doesn't read that way in that uh, in that Rolling Stone thing. But I, I remember a lot of early IMs from her about that band to a lot of people at that label. So I don't know. And so Kevin Lyman. What was his role in that time period? I know he kind of had some. Kevin was a was a was an owner inside one dummy at for a time. Okay, he was involved. Yeah, but but very tangentially so. You know, however, I would say like Big D getting on that label uh, because he had spent so much time with them on the Warp Tour. He had seen the that their work ethic. Big D was among the first bands that really started trying to promote their set times at the Warp Tour. You know what I mean? Like where you're flyering the porta potties and you're, you know, doing everything in your power to make people who are already at this event know that you're playing at a certain time at a certain place. And, um, I think that, uh, that Kevin Lyman saw in big D like just hard workers, you know, they were really like making the most of the opportunity. And, um, I think Kevin was among the first to sort of recommend big D to side one dummy. Yeah, that's what Dave has said to me. It was that Ke- it was Kevin's recommendation. Yes, that's ab- that's absolutely right. Yeah, I'm really curious about the origin of you being the uh, the bass fiddleman. <laughs> is there is there a story? Because always every time I read about it, it, just says, "Oh, because he was a proficient bass player." Uh huh. No, because because Dickie is a wordsmith. <laughs> because he's <laughs> he's up he's up there on stage introducing the band as he as he did so many times. So and and so generously too, you know what I mean. So he so he just came up with it one night. I I I assume I don't know I don't you know, but it, it appeared on a record. I th- maybe the first record it was on was uh was uh don't know how to party maybe, but I don't I don't I, but, but but you can you can be sure that that was something that Dickie made up absolutely. <laughs> just on the spot, off the cuff. It's a good nickname. Yeah. Did anybody else get any good nicknames? Uh. Uh, Nate Dog. <laughs> Some of them weren't that good. <laughs> Nate Dog. Nate Dog was kind of a name that was intended to kind of be awkward and stupid. Why is that? I don't know. Just like kind of like tongue in cheek, you know, like like yeah. because it because he's really not a Nate Dog kind of guy, probably. Sure. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he's he's not a Nate Dog kind of guy. Uh, <laughs> ben, uh, who was the Joe the Kid, Joe Soros, uh, Johnny Vegas, Tim Burton, uh, D Man. Uh, Sweet P. Lanier, um, boy, L. Uh, Buck Buck Boogie, Lawrence Katz, Buck Buck Boogie, uh, J. G. 
um, most recently we were calling it, sometimes he'd be called JG, John Getches. Sometimes Magoo was another one that got thrown around with him occasionally. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. If I caught everybody, did I get everybody? I think so. Maybe. I'm curious about your approach to bass with the band. And, and I've had like a conversation with Nate about Nate Dog. about um kind of blew my mind a little bit when he told me this yeah uh because nate's really responsible if you think about it for the sort of ska verse punk chorus formula that became incredibly popular in 90s i would agree with that and he said oh yeah um i was just listening to the pixies and i was like Mm. doing my spin of it my spin on that style Uh and i was like wow that is like it it makes so much sense but it never would have crossed my mind that that's what was going on in his mind. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you were involved with this early formation of this style of ska punk. So I'm curious what your approach has been. Okay. Well, uh, I can tell you the first time that anyone ever responded to that sort of combination of, of like stapling together the punk with the ska kind of like, you know, in a, in a, in a start kind of a way where it goes mm-hmm. from ska to punk in a, split of a blink blink of an eye or whatever you know and it was um when we were in high school in our drummer's basement josh he lives in in uh he lives in brookline and he had some friends over watching some of the first boston's practices and um that song the cave kind of had that had this kind of like kind of amped up distorted kind of riff thing but then it would it would just butt up against like the horn ska part or whatever and I just remember um, his friend, uh, Jen uh, Leonardi, she said, she's like, oh boy, I really love the way you guys, when it went from that loud thing to that groovy part and then back, that was so cool. And uh, I, we just kept doing that from then on <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. But, but, you know, yeah, Nate, certainly. I mean, he refined it in a way and he really, you know, he, he might've gotten to Pixies, certainly, um, you know, the, that sort of sensibility and, you know, he's a fantastic guitar player, really capable of playing any kind of music. Um, but there were times when that was just sort of like, you know, just sort of like throwing shit against the wall too. Let's make this loud. Let's make this, this, let's make that, that, you know? Um, so I'm sure there were different, there were different reasons that pushed it along. Him having an, a, an amp that had a, a dirty and a clean channel even, you know, was t- to us was was part of the magic, you know, the good and evil, I guess, as, as it became known later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting how, like, say, like something like Nirvana, Smell Like Teen Spirit took very, very similar influence, that same Pixies influence to create that song uh-huh. that Nate took to create, like, Boston's sound. Uh-huh. It's it's kind of fascinating totally. how um, the seeds create different branches for different people. Absolutely. And, you know, you got to think of, so let's say somebody's inspired by that and, you know, they encounter a whole other group of people and they're, you know, trying to make different kinds of music. And the shows that you start, not, nothing informs, I think, the way your, your band starts to sound. Then like the show, the type of shows you play in the beginning and the bands you play with and the people that come see you. You know, is it a, a coffee house or is it an all Asia show? That was the biggest thing for the Boston. You know, we had been together before Devil's Night Out, largely playing 21 plus shows because those were our friends that could give us those shows. 
you know, opening up for a band like Scruffy the Cat or, you know, the, I don't know who else. Um, you know, it was, those people were a little too cool for the Boston's or a little, <laughs> maybe some of them a little too old for the Boston's, you know, at that point. It wasn't until we got signed to Tang and started playing all ages shows. You know, that was a, we went from like first of four bar band, 100 cap to like now we're playing first of four at the channel opening for Slapshot on an all ages show, you know? Yeah, much better. Makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Positioning yourself in the right place <laughs> was a big part of the Boston success too. Like we, we, we found our constituency where there were, you know, younger people who are into faster and more aggressive music. You definitely have this audience that develops in the late 80s and 90s. And it's like all about listening to all kinds of music. So when you hear bands that are saying like, well, we play all kinds of music. It's like, yeah, great. I'm a fan. <laughs> right. The Boston scene felt like that to me for a long time. And, and you know, maybe still does it, but I don't really go to that many shows anymore. But like, you know, the, the ska band playing with the garage band playing with the, you know, whatever hardcore band or, or something like that. Like I always, Boston always kind of felt that way to me, you know, because it, at least in, in my early time, there was always, it was all about friend, the friendships that existed between these bands. And it was less about the style of the music really. Yeah. You know, so we got a lot of really eclectic and cool kind of, kind of shows and different kinds of bands touring up and packaging together or, or playing shows together, that kind of thing. So in the, in the first wave of Boston's before you, you kind of broke up or went on hiatus and reformed. Oh my God. Are we going to, are we going to call Boston's waves now too? That's going to get too confusing. Yes. <laughs> first wave. First wave Boston's. Okay. Which was pre third wave ska. Okay. Got it. Yes. I'm following. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you, did you play with uh, Bim Scala Bim a lot? Oh yeah. Yes. Of course. I mean, Bim, you know, Bim gave us some of our, our first shows. You know, we, we played at the channel with Bim Scala Bim. We played handful of shows, but Bim, I was, you know, the, the big, the more impactful thing there for me was just, they were putting on all ages shows, you know, up, up the street from my house. You know, I could walk to see a show that they were putting on. There was a church in Har outside Harvard square that they would put on shows sometimes or, there was a there was also a bar room up the street from my house that had a huge plate glass window that you could watch from the street. So when I was starting from the time I was probably eleven, I would sometimes would walk up there late night and just watch through the plate glass window. It was called um it was called Jack's was the name of this place. And um seeing shows there saw Bim there too, I would I, I would imagine. I'm just sort of guessing at this point, but it's hard to imagine they didn't play. But so you know Bim was very much involved in trying to create infrastructure for the ska scene, a label, finding ways to distribute people's music, putting out, putting together compilations, you know, with all kinds of ska bands from around the country or in Boston, trying to help spread the word. Like Bim Scala Bim was always first and foremost, the scene. You know what I mean? Like they were, they were always seeming, seemed like they were working on something for everybody. They put out, um, the mashing up the nation, right? Yeah. Mash it up, mashing up the nation. Uh, there were, I think a few of those they put out. Was, uh, the, your inclusion on, uh, their compilations, was that kind of your first inclusion on anything like that? What year did that first compilation come out? Do you know? Hmm, that first, see. 
that first We're mashing it up says 91 i feel like yeah. there was an i know there, there was one before that one. wasn't there yeah maybe it was mash it up mash it up check check mash it up okay because i think that was a boston thing because i do recall yeah, i think 87 okay there yeah. you go so yes we, we uh pre devil's night out recorded three songs we recorded drums and chickens uh we recorded um uh little bit ugly and the cave was the other yeah, the one the cave is what's on mash it up yeah the caves on mash it up and um those same versions kind of are on devils and out but they were kind of prettied up a little bit you know um which we, we we messed with it a bit i i think but i think it no actually no that was a different version of that song because that's that's how we start calling this thing a different thing every time that that song name uh but yeah uh drums and chickens was on that record 87 that probably was the first time the boston's boston's music ever came out anywhere and you were the boston's not the mighty mighty boston's right yeah we were the and then we were the less than mighty boston's and then we were the almost nearly mighty <laughs> boston's and then we felt comfortable finally finally we were comfortable enough to take on that second mighty <laughs> i have to say and i'm curious about this certain like names for some reason like when i heard the name mighty mighty boss tones i just immediately liked the fact that it was two mighties like it just something Uh about the way it sounds is just ah that's perfect like yeah so when we when uh the boston recorded those three songs then we broke up yeah that was the first boss tones breakup um i joined gangrene and recorded a few records and toured Europe with gangrene for a few years and Nate went to college and, um, you know, that was just that it was, you know, it had been a, no one, no one really knew we stopped, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> like there was a outpouring or anything like that, but when we got back together, so then, then, uh, I leave gangrene and, and, uh, Dickie talks about putting the Boston's back together. And it was really nice of him in that time. I, I, I think that it was, he saw that I, I'd been kicked out of gangrene, by the way. Oh yeah. What'd you do? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I think, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what I did to be honest with you. That was, uh, that was a, a pretty wild sort of bunch to try and be a part of, you know? Um, I, I think, I think part of it was, I kind of, I was always Chris's plus one in everything. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any <laughs> drugs. I didn't have any guest list spots. I didn't have a way to get to the show. And I, and I think, uh, I don't know, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not really sure, but Chris struck up a friendship with, um, this guy, Josh Pape, who was my friend too, from the band DRI, we toured Europe together and Josh ended up being the new bass player. And, and that was fine with me ultimately. Um, you know, the Boston's got back together. And when we did though, point being, it was the bartender at, at, at the rat, the rascaler in Boston. When we got back together, his name was Greg he just put on the board. So now the Boston's are appearing for the first time in three years or something. And he just put mighty, mighty in chalk on the board. And that was, that was just that from then on, we just kind of held on to that. Dang. Just that one little moment. Yeah. <laughs> and there was concerns about another band called the Boston's from the fifties. There's some kind mm. of a Harvard doo-wop group or something like that. So we were just sort of like, you know, does this give us more protection? <laughs> <laughs> that first breakup 
Was that actually a breakup or was that just kind of things fizzling out? Oh, I, I'm breakup. It's like, I don't know. If the thing's fizzling out, yeah, absolutely. There was, there wasn't, wasn't like much. There wasn't. There wasn't much to fizzle out. To be honest with you, yeah. You know, it was. It was barely a thing to begin with. Mm. Um, we had. We did. However, probably the most significant thing that happened in those early pre Devil's Night Out years is we opened up for Fishbone at Jonathan Swift's in Harvard Square, which was a little bar room. Um, we played two shows with Fishbone in 1980. It was either 85 or 86, whenever Fishbone's first tour to the East Coast was. And, you know, that was very significant to us, you know. Um, seeing 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 music played at that level, you know what I mean? And, and I mean, significant in many ways. I mean, on, on one hand, I think it depressed us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a great era for Fishbone. Dude, we had, I don't even know what song it was, but. In some fucking song, we were, we were, like at the end, we were adding in um, the the riff from Fat Albert, and that's how we played it. All right, like couldn't have been any more like uptight, you know. <laughs> have you ever heard Fishbone sing that Fat Albert theme? I don't think I have, or I can't remember. I, I don't know if they still do anymore. But oh, they did it that night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not so sure they 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 caught or recognized our uh, our our tip of the cap to Fat Albert earlier in the night. Mm-hmm. But holy shit, you know, like like just the, the the that is that and we are us kind of a thing that happened <laughs> yeah. there. Did y'all stop playing the Fat Albert part after? Oh that? yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just shamed out of it. Yeah, because I mean, like the the philosophy, you know, you get you guys are operating from a point of view of there being like two tone ska, hardcore, all these different elements, and you're putting them together. Um, not a lot of people are doing that at this point, so it's there's not really like a lot of rules. But then you see Fishbone, they they're doing that too, their own version of that. Like we're we're gonna play any and everything. They're doing it, but the the record was produced by David Kahn, and it was like you know it was beautiful. You know what I mean? Like it was done sk- yeah. skillfully and there was heavy guitar on that record too, you know, but not maybe not in the back and forth kind of a way so much or whatever, you know, but like, like the, very much fishbone broadened the, the genre of ska and um, without a doubt sort of re-energized, you know, gave young people who were still trying to kind of carry the torch from, I, I saw the English beat in 83. Okay. Mm-hmm. I played with fishbone in 86. Those years in between is like when Bim Scala Bim was their busiest trying to like keep things kind of afloat and going and, you know, building something for, for, you know, some sky infrastructure again in Boston, you know. Fishbone and Operation Ivy were the most important acts in terms of what would come. And, but Fishbone more so because Operation Ivy was like this uh, thing that people discovered later because they kind of broke up. So, yeah. Because they started in eighty seven and they ended in eighty nine. We we started in eighty we started in eighty three and ended in two thousand twenty three. Twenty two. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, Fishbone, like they rewrote the rules, I think. Mm-hmm. Of um ska ska, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Aggressive leaning ska music, you know. But also the hybridization of it too, you know what I mean? Like the the sort of you know, the, the starkly different 
um, styles of music coming into that too. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it got heavy, and, and you know, it could be really heavy. We we toured with them on in Europe on the um, Give a Monkey a Brain record. You know, when it was really heavy, JB was playing guitar, and like they were, you know, Fishbone was really a heavy band at that point. You know? Yeah. Um, but so in '85, you know, not only was it sort of the God, those songs, you know, Party at Ground Zero is has a better song been written. <laughs> I just love it so much. It's just perfect, you know. Yeah. Um, but at, but at the same time, it's like you go see their shows, and and there was a there was a, a hard and heavy energy that would that would appear there, you know. So I don't know. It to, to us, it was just like it was um, it was amazing to see. So um, you, so before you joined Gangrene, you were you roadied for them. Is that true? I did. Yeah, I, I roadied for um, Gangrene. It was the day after I graduated high school. I got asked to go on a U.S. tour. I, I wow. landed in the van and and we went out to California and back. It was probably six weeks or something like that. Was that your first tour? Oh yeah, first tour. <laughs> dri- so driving a van. Um, well, well I, I had done like a weekend thing in, in, when I was in high school, I was roading for bands too, as I said, so maybe a couple of weekend things I had done here or there, but a tour tour, no. And you know, it was, um, you leaving your hometown for that period of time and seeing the country at that age is, is of course, like probably as amazing and monumental an experience as a young person can have and doing it around music and the thing you love. And, you know, that was where I first you know, I, here I am, I'm teaching now and I've produced and I've tour managed Flog and Molly and I've been in the Boston. But that was initially where I had a clear sense that I, I just wanted to be around the music, play some part in making it happen, I guess was cool with me. I have a lot of, you know, sort of pride in those behind the scenes kind of projects I've been involved in. Um, it doesn't have to be an on the stage thing for me to feel the pride of it, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, as a kid, being on side stage, changing strings, loading the van when the band is, you know, off doing whatever they're doing and making sure we get there safe or whatever it was, felt like a huge responsibility to me, you know. And so at that age, 18, um, and no plans of going to college at that point, it was sort of like, this is, I'm throwing my, I'm throwing all of my eggs in this basket, whatever that is, as a musician, as a roadie, as a driver as a whatever you know it's just i was down for the music you know do you have any like crystal clear memories from that first tour because i can remember the first time i toured yes i do many many i remember having a fight with uh we we broke um uh steve soto's amp we, we played a show um uh, where was that i wish i could i wish i could remember where that was but I, I remember that i remember playing a um i remember playing a uh it was a um i believe it was some kind of a pet cemetery property or something like that but it was it was like it had a, had had the energy of more like a skinhead squat kind of a thing and um down south in florida and one of the one of the most challenging things about gangrene and hardcore at that point traveling the country and going south is the the people who would show up for those things were really super out there with their racism Mm. you know what i mean like that was sort of hardcore music in in florida at that point was it was it was super nazi damn yeah and so 
like I'm seeing this now. I'm 18, and I'm like, you know, I'm 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 a, I'm away from home for the first time. <laughs> you know, I no no one said there were going to be Nazis there though. You know, <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it was a wild experience. So so yeah, big memories of of certain kind of experiences that just felt like you know either threatening or or just out of out of the ordinary or 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 whatever it is. I remember another show we played where we were we were waiting outside to get paid and the guy never came out. He left through the front and went home. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, so there were some of that shows that fall apart. You know, some of the shows had contracts, some of them didn't. You know, some of them were kind of advanced, some of them were you get there and oh no that you know that that got canceled weeks ago kind of a thing. Mm. As it was when you were trying to communicate on the road and stay in touch with people and all that kind of stuff. Trying to find a payphone. Yeah. I remember <laughs> exactly. Fenders in Long Beach was always super violent. There yeah. was there were stabbings and stuff that would take place at those shows and like it seemed like more like gang kind of violence going on, those things. Um I don't I didn't really understand the the dynamics of all of that. Um, but I was aware of it, certainly. When in those days of touring where were you guys s- staying at night? <laughs> uh, sometimes I'd stay in the van, depending yeah. on where the van would be parked up. We we might be four in a Motel Six, mm. you know, in a room, you know, four per room or or something like that. We might be um, um, crashing at an audience member's house. Sometimes was you know, like the party at the club turns into the after party turns into the up all night party. Um, kind of a vibe, you know, so sometimes it would just sort of be like loading out and, you know, hanging out with other people and seeing where it goes. I remember staying at the world famous uh, Tropicana Motel in Los Angeles on the uh-huh. Sunset Strip there. That was like a real kind of like band spot of, of the time and um, jumping off the roof into the pool and that kind of stuff, you know. Um, <laughs> How high up is that roof? Uh, you know, two two stories motel. Right. Um, you're not 20, 20 feet or something like that. Not, not too, too high. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I remember a lot of weird little things that happened. Um, just because at the time they were so like, sort of, I don't know what you'd say impactful, I guess. Yeah. You guys never piled everybody into one hotel room. Oh, I'm sure we did. Yeah. (laughs) There were plenty of times we did that. Yeah. Always the worst. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know what's funny? When when we first got at Boston's got on a tour bus in Europe, that was our first you could you know, we we probably did four or five US tours in a van. Yeah. And and uh with a trailer. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, we were we were starting to pack clubs and we probably could have taken the step up to, to a better touring vehicle at that point. But we were getting close to that point in the US. But when we went to Europe, we were right on a bus. And it was so funny, like, uh, I remember the promoter was like, okay, well, you know, we, we, the bus would be parked here at the at the motor coach park space. And then, you know, a quarter mile away, is there are three hotel rooms and, you know, you can get the key at the desk and da, 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 da. You go and get in the hotel. But we had this thing. It's like once we were on that bus, like the hotel had no nothing for us anymore. Like we had this never leave the mothership mentality about the bus. Because yeah. the bus had the bus had all our stuff there. It had our yeah. beer there. It had like like the hotel was like once for us. Once we were on that bus, just for, for the for the duration of those that first European tour, it was like it was just so much better than a hotel room. 
So you're just using the hotel rooms to shower, basically. I'm sure, but but the venues had that too, you know. Oh yeah, the the, the venues over there they they take care of bands better over there, new band yeah. touring bands and stuff. They might cook you a real meal and and you know have a have a bunk room in the back with nice clean sheets and fresh towels and you know it might look like shit. The performance space might be like kind of squatty or whatever, but you know the the treatment that bands get going to Europe mm-hmm. is pretty amazing. Do you remember playing? Did you Boston's play any actual squats? Um, no, but uh, I played squats with Avoid One Thing when I toured Europe with Avoid One Thing. I remember we played we played a squat in uh, in Dubrovnik, Croatia, mm-hmm. um, and there are probably maybe a couple others that might have kind of leaned in that direction. Yeah. It's it's not always clear, you know. And there sometimes like you you you'll see sort of um, nonprofit organizations that are it's not really a squat because they have this organization around it or something, right? Like that. You know, it's 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 not always like perfectly clear what what you're dealing with there, you know. Or does it? I mean, I think I mean, I'm just I'm just gleaning this from having had multiple conversations with people about this. It seems like what a squat is in Europe isn't necessarily what we think of as a squat. Yes. Yeah. They, they, they tend to be organized, you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah. like there can be a, um, a board around it or something like that. You know, uh, I guess, the, um, you know, Christiana is that in Denmark, right? Christiana yeah. that, you know, I don't even know how that came to be, but that, that is sort of, I guess would be the ultimate demonstration of that, where it's like a city within a city, and it's being run by, I don't know, these individuals and, or at least what I understood it to be back when I went there, you know, collective, a, a collaboration, a, a nonprofit, a arts organization, you know, sometimes they might create these organizations because they're looking for f- grant funding too. And, and, you know, there's, there's, there's quite a bit of grant, grant funding out there. You go to, you tour through the Netherlands and you'll be in a venue that's like, completely like government owned you know but yeah. but run by some kind of a arts organization and it's a beautiful venue you know like incredible venue with the the best lighting and sound that you've seen on the whole tour but it's sort of like this loosely knit group of people who are trying to bring music to their community you know mm-hmm. um that's sort of how uh, Roskilde started too the, the festival of Roskilde was sort of a, a local community arts organization, a couple high school kids. Is that the like reggae festival? Roskilde? No, Roskilde is, um, I think, is the one where, um, unfortunately, in 2000, uh, Pearl Jam had that sort of crushing act incident. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's Roskilde. Um, Denmark, again, I think. Somewhere in Northern Europe. <laughs> so coming back to uh your new uh solo release um and upcoming release yeah are we gonna see uh joe gittleman uh touring or live concerts uh i, I don't know i don't really know that's a, that's a good question i'm not i just i just i just don't know i'm just kind of like i'm bearing my nose and everything that feels rewarding and fun <laughs> right now yeah. and so if there's a tour that sounds seems rewarding and fun you know i, I i'm a, i stress about a lot of that stuff so i don't know if that'll that'll hit me as rewarding as and fun 
you know. To be determined. To be determined. Yeah. But I, I can tell you that I'm going to keep writing, writing music and making records. Very cool. Hell yeah. Don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Ska. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Ska, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying Ska now more than ever. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.